uh, founder, producer, engineer, editor extraordinaire, Larry Crane of uh, Jackpot Recording, Tape Up Magazine, uh, etc. Fame. Uh, hi, Larry. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks. No problem. Thanks for having me here. You like how I put on my big formal recording yeah, voice. I like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Impressive. He drops right in. It's like he went into the, the uh, really, telephone booth and came out podcasting. It's really um, good to be here, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's good. We've got a few things to talk a about. Sultry baritone. Uh, <laughs> Uh, rich mahogany voice. Uh, so, let's start with where are you from? Are you from Portland or? I'm, sh- I'm not. Um, I grew up in Northern California uh, by way of Berkeley, Oakland, Nevada City, and Chico. All those places. So I kind of spent my time between, I grew up in the Bay Area when I was a little kid. And then my formative like 7 to 18 years I was in the Nevada City area which is a really rich cultural area. And then I went to college in Chico State. And uh, and then when I, at the very end of college, I started a band called Vomit Launch. And, okay. and that lasted like eight years and toured the country. So so that kind of was like, I was going to move to the Bay Area, like do a full circle back to Oakland or something uh-huh. after college. But the band started, and so I, ro- I rode that out until I was about 30. <laughs> That's awesome. How did you um, how did you end up in Portland instead? Well, we used to tour up the Northwest a lot. That was kind of our best little regular, you know, tour two or three times a year route. And we'd come up here and play Satyricon. Uh, there was a great venue called the Blue Gallery back in the day down near Powell's, kind of in uh, what's a little bit fancier area now, the Pearl. Yeah. Um, and uh, we used to come up. We became friends with a lot of the bands here. Like a Calamity Jane was one of our favorite bands. The Dharma Bums were super nice. Played a their first record release show, opening for them. Uh, Cracker Bash opened for us. Um, you know, we just had a good time coming to Portland, and we made friends. And we had another friend that had moved here from California. We'd stay with them uh, in the kind of in the Belmont area, like around Thirty Third and Belmont. Okay. And so, after a while, it was kind of like, you know, when the band broke up. I was wondering what to do, and our guitar player, Lindsay, moved up here before me. Uh, Lindsay now runs Exiled Records. She's the okay. owner of that, a co-owner. Um, and so she moved up here, and she's like, come visit. So I drove up, and we we're hanging out. I went to Seattle to visit um, some friends, the Walkabouts. There were some good friends of mine I had a band up there. And uh, I, was, I just turned 30. I think I was just about to turn 30. And I went on this little road trip, and I decided... Heck, I'll move to Portland, <laughs> you know, because I didn't have a band. I wanted to live somewhere that had a lot of music venues, and I really was going to actually get out of music. I was just I was so in debt from being in a band, and mm-hmm. my I was stuck with a tour van, which was <laughs> a piece of shit. It was falling <laughs> apart. Yeah. And so uh, so I you know just decided to move up here. And Lizzie said, "Come stay with me. I'll put you up until you get a place to to stay." But within a week, I was living in a house with some cool folks, um, and it turned out John Moen from Dharma Bums, now the Decemberist and everything, was uh, working for my roommate, and my roommate's girlfriend's like, oh, I've seen your band before, and and you know, ended up with some, some good folks and just started making more connections, and pretty soon um, I was working for McMinimins after a little bit, and uh, had lots of free time, and got paid fairly well for a simple job uh-huh. and um i started building a little studio in my basement my wife at the time my first wife was a drummer 
In fact, every person I've been married to is a drummer. All three of them. Um, That's good you have a type. I guess. I mean, I didn't try. <laughs> right. But so we started playing music together, and we started uh, building a little studio in the basement. Uh, my friend Dewey Mahood, who owns uh, Mothership Music now, mm-hmm. uh, worked at Trade Up for years. He was in Eternal Tapestry and and, and some other bands. Um, he dropped off some four-track reel-to-reels his uncle had gave him. So we put a wall in our rehearsal studio. I mean, I put a window in the wall, and then we were like started recording ourselves, and we got Dewey to come play bass. So that was a band called Flaming Box of Ants uh-huh. that eventually morphed into another band called Elephant Factory, where we swapped around. On I, I went back to bass, which was my real instrument, uh-huh. and so uh, we we did that. That band kind of started because the studios kind of started because of the band and recording the songs and mucking around. And then John Moen would start coming over and doing demos for a band he had called the Maroons. Uh-huh. And then the Maroons did their first record, our first single in my basement when we borrowed, we borrowed Quasi's recording equipment. Okay. And then recorded a single. I helped him do that. Okay. And then I bought a, I got hit by, I got bust, uh, doored by a car. Okay. On my bike coming home from work one day, and I woke up in a with a concussion. And I got a settlement, so I bought like a little mixing board and an eight-track reel-to-reel, and uh, and then I, I started uh, recording more the Maroons' first album, and then also that led to like like Elliot Smith coming over and recording a little bit of, of a, just a tiny bit of stuff on uh, either or what mm-hmm. became either or, and uh, and then Elliot's girlfriend Joanna was in a band called Junior High with Sean. He used to be in Cracker Bash, so they did a single, and then. The guy that was playing lead guitar had a band, so they came over. You know, it all kind of kept going like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what what year are we in here? Like what? that would have. I moved here in '93, and I think, you know, I started recording people. Our band like '94. I was even four tracking in the first house I lived in mm-hmm. when I got here. I started writing my own songs, and that's kind of what morphed into Flaming Box Advance with with Marilla, my first wife, mm-hmm. and Dewey. Um, so that you know the first stuff that was really kind of being recorded for other people was probably 94 95 like the maroons and then uh-huh. that led to you know we had cat power over there we had um stephen malcolmist did demos for uh um what's the bright in the corners pavement album oh, sure. yeah. yeah and some other stuff that ended up with the oh what's that other band he was playing in the jicks no you know the one uh, it's led by this other guy but they had a forgetting anyway uh yeah put it in the show notes yeah yeah I, just, I don't know but anyway so he was doing demos there rebecca gates from the spinanes did some demos she was someone i'd known for a long time um and you know it just and well i was also friends with mark robinson of, of team beat records back mm-hmm. east and so like he would send versus to my house to do a single or a compilation track while they were on tour mm-hmm. so i had all these connections you yeah know, yeah from, from years you know, bands would come stay with me and work on stuff, and bands would come up from California that I knew, younger folks I knew and stuff. They'd come stay and work on a record at my house. So it became pretty obvious I needed to get a commercial space. Yeah. At the same time, I started Tape Op Magazine because I wanted to learn more how to on how to record, you know. And you started that before you got a... Before a commercial, commercial space. Commercial space. Yeah, like a year before, Okay. basically. So like like ninety six tape op started like in the spring, uh-huh. and and that was just like a way to learn more. Like I just thought, number one, I I'd, I'd been researching a lot. I would go to the library here, which this this town has a great library downtown. Yeah, 
And I would go there and I'd read every book and every magazine I could find. And I would go to Powell's and buy books and buy magazines. And the thing about the magazines was I was like, who cares how Toto made their new record that nobody is listening to? You know? Right. Who cares? I mean, they're writing about this stuff. It's just bullshit. Yeah. You know? I was like, yeah. And I'm thinking, like, I'd rather hear about the records I like, you know? Like, how were they made? So that was the idea. Like, smaller producer engineers and studios and people you know, artists, artists making their own records. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, the, I mean, you make it seem like such a natural progression, but was there like, uh, like when you started tape op, did you, was there a moment where you were like, shit, I mean, I'm over my head doing like all these projects. I or didn't, was it... No, I didn't try to do it real big at the beginning. It okay. was quarterly and yeah. it was Xeroxed. So I had a, an end somewhere where I could just go and Xerox and then cut someone a check for, the time after hours so i would go and buy paper and just go in there and use up all their toner and then i would take them home staple them myself you know i was doing all the layout myself mm-hmm. i wasn't really looking for ads mm-hmm. i was selling subscriptions that were really cheap but i basically sent you know hundreds of copies out to labels and bands and people that i knew and that was kind of the thing. That's kind of the, the follow through is always what work is what is impo- important mm-hmm. with any kind of creative endeavor. So I was able to because of that. I knew people at Matador. I knew people at Discord. You know, they would take out little cheap ads, and um, I used to send them. The person who'd recorded the last two Vomit Launch records and produced us was John Bacigalupi, who still had a studio in Sacramento, and so I would send him copies and he'd go hey that's really cool you know and that's what eventually led to us forming a partnership and doing tape op together because he had a lot of publishing experience he'd Mm. he'd done a magazine called heckler um which was like a skate music snowboarding kind of magazine and um at the point they had kind of an office full of people and they're like if we take on more magazines then we'll have more work for them Mm -hmm. Uh, eventually, it just filtered all out, and Heckler went under, and it just ended up being me and John doing tape pop. So mm-hmm. it worked out great. But he's like one of my best friends, you know. And uh, so that kind of he alleviated the the stress a little bit. Like basically, I went like about three years on my own, and I maxed out a credit card, and then I was like, "What am I doing?" You know, because yeah. I didn't I didn't really go into the publishing game to make money. I didn't right. think it was possible. And John goes, "You can make money." let's do it you know it's going to take a few years and it did take a long time to start turning a real profit but yeah but you know it he had the the wisdom of how to do it the right way like to offer free subscriptions and let the advertising pay for the printing and distribution yeah um you know and the advertising is the hardest part you know like that's a lot of painful work like selling ads yeah for sure but he had that vision so when he came aboard, I kind of said, I just want to do the editing part and the writing and the interviews, and then you can do the layout and the publishing. You yeah. Know? So it's a great division of labor. So, um... <laughs> this is all like, whoosh, that's 99 when that happened. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And the studio, Jackpot opened in 97, like, the, the, the like probably like January or something, 97. This is on uh, Morrison at Twentieth and Morrison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let's 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 jump back to the act, yeah. that for a moment. Um, how how did that come about? How long did it take you to set that up? And, you know, get that going. Well, I my house was getting so busy. Like, never people were starting to send me work that was pretty weird. Like, you know, like metal bands, metal funk bands 
singing about girls' body parts and shit. Um, in the basement? Yeah, it was kind of like, and I, you know, I was living there with my wife, and, and we had a roommate, uh, the multi-talented Francisco Garcia saw was living there for a lot of that. And um, so and we had other roommates over the years, too, and it was kind of like, you know, I'm thinking I'm torturing him. Dewey's dad, actually, Scott Mahood, who works at Pals Books, was living there. And, uh-huh. you know, it, it was kind of nasty, you know, like, also, like, I remember recording Stephen Malcolm and Francisco was hanging paintings in his room. And it was like, gunk, 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 you know. Like, right. So right. you needed, a, I just needed it. Yeah. I knew I needed a commercial space. Um, I was at EJ's one night, uh, which was a really fun club that we all used to just go to all the time. And uh, I swear to God, she does. She says this didn't happen, but I swear to God, Rebecca Gates grabbed me and Elliot Smith and said, you guys need to talk. You're both doing, you're both about to do the same exact thing. And so, what are you talking about? Oh, and he's like, I'm going to build a 16-track studio. I'm like, I'm going to build a 16-track studio. And we'd already worked together briefly uh, mm-hmm. on pictures of me on either or. And um, Joanna was kind of our mutual friend. Like, I was friends with her friends that worked at La Luna. She was a bartender there. And um, I would just see her around a lot. And I'd record a junior high uh, where she was playing bass in. And... Um, you know, it was just, it's sort of, a, we had a meeting, we went over to a, a bar one day and drank pints of beer and we just talked about, like, well, could we do this? And I, I luckily said, uh, I'm, I'm going to run, the, I'm going to do this, but do you want to help me get the place up and running? So it was really funny, like, like Rebecca Gates claims that she never, you know, said this to us, but, but she basically, I swear to God, she put me and Elliot Smith together and said, you guys are going to do the same thing. And that was to build a 16-track studio. So we found uh, the space on 20th and Morrison. The landlord was cool. He kind of knew the business we were in. And um, we moved in there and just built a wall, divided the room up, uh, put all our gear in there. We were open within a couple of weeks of signing the lease. We really scrambled. And I had people booked up, you know, people coming from California to record and and all kinds of stuff. The Maroons were in real soon. Uh, this band called Harvester uh, was in. A uh, bunch of stuff was just set to go. So I um, scrambled, got it ready, and, and just started working my ass off. Uh-huh. And, and along the way, which is crazy, that, that first even few months, I started recording stuff for Elliot. Like, we didn't know that that would be something we'd be doing. But um, we recorded, like, Miss Misery and demos of stuff for um, what would become XO, uh-huh. like uh, Bled White. And uh, we did a version of Division Day that never got released and um, demos for Waltz Number 1 and all kinds of stuff um, that later became kind of iconic, you know, in a way. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember, like, going down there one day, and I, I was getting tired of recording him every time he'd pop in. So <laughs> we taught Joanna how to record, and, and she helped track uh, Baby Britain, the big, the basic tracks of that. And, and uh, you know, so it was just a lot of – it was just – it was. Elliot turned out to be really, really cool to hang out with. You know, we got, I, he, I remember him first telling me like, you know, sometimes I don't get along with people when I'm recording cause I have my own way of doing stuff. And, and at that point really I was just learning. So, you know, I would just record very simply and straightforward. And he was like, great, this is what I want, you know, mm-hmm. cause he'd been, he'd had issues, I think working with, with, I guess with Tony Lash who'd been in heat miser with him and, and Tony knew was learning. He Tony was really learning to become a really great producer, and and so here's two guys that really kind of want to produce, 
you know, in the same band and mm-hmm. pushing and pulling. And I think that I'm, I always assumed that must be what he was thinking about. But, you know, I was just there to facilitate. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, does that sound good? All right, cool. It's Mike the other thing, you know. And uh, so really like that first, you know, few months or something, all these things started happening. And um, when we recorded Miss Misery, he played that. He had Gus Van Sant by one day and, and Gus is like, hey, I'm using some of your music as temp score, you know, like putting it in a film, but it, it might be replaced. Um, but would you would be interested? Do you have a new song that we could put in there? And he played a Miss Misery, which was just, a, you know, kind of, I mean, I kind of thought a demo. Mm-hmm. Next thing I know, there some guy flies up, grabs it, runs down back to L.A., and they mix it, and they put it in Goodwill Hunting, and it gets nominated for an Oscar. Uh-huh. You know, so it's kind of like, what? You know, like uh-huh. zero to 50 for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And this all, this 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 is how soon, since when you first opened the... the... I mean, all that was happening within that year, I think. Yeah, okay. You know? Yeah. It's kind of hard to remember, but it, it definitely... I mean, Goodwill Hunting came out, in, I think, in 96... Okay. Or 97, I mean, sorry. Uh, and then his, Elliot signed his contract with uh, with DGC or DreamWorks or whatever uh, in um, in the beginning of 2000, or 19, Jesus, the beginning of 1998, uh-huh. January. Okay. So, you know, that all just kind of escalated fast. I mean, things were on the way for him. His manager, you know, also worked for BMG and then hooked him up with the publishing deal, which provided his income so he could quit working you know so i knew there's stuff in place and and her husband um rob schnapp and his buddy tom rothrock were producing most of uh either or and they'd produced heat miser's final record too so mike city sons so you kind of see all this what's going on in the background Mm -hmm. you know so Mm -hmm. he knew things were on the way you know and he was killing it i mean you go see a show of his back then just playing solo you know, you'd have a hundred and some odd people just just sit on the floor, dead quiet, watching them. Mm-hmm. He, he was one of the best performers I'd ever seen, and just you know worked really hard at the writing and the arranging and the playing. And so it was a treat. You know, it was easy person to record. <laughs> yeah, his, his ideas were were there. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was kind of wild. You know, I was doing that and then recording tons of other stuff. Junior High's first first record and. Uh, this band called Land of the Wee Beasties, which some of the guys went on to be in the Swords Project. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I mean, Richmond Fontaine's second record. I begged to do that one because I knew they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I was, I was, there were times where I was working 30 days a, a month, mm-hmm. you know, just, and I would just let people work as long as they wanted. And I would go home and work on the magazine at night. Uh-huh. I had more energy. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we all did. I was 30-something. <laughs> is it, uh, I'm curious, um, were there, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to ask if there were, like, favorite people that you've recorded, but I already said it, so, like, do you yeah. have, like, favorite people to work with? I mean, other than, you know, uh, Elliot, like, are there? Yeah, I mean, quasi yeah. Those, those two quasi-records we did, Field Studies and uh, uh, Featuring Birds, before that, I think are two of my favorite records I've ever worked on or, or maybe heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's a great, yeah. That's a real treat. I don't think anyone could deny how amazing that was. But, uh, you know, early on, yeah, tons of, oh my God, it's crazy. I feel really lucky. I mean, like the go-betweens yeah. coming from Australia to do their comeback record and with Janet Weiss on drums and that's that's you know you're just lucky Sleater Kenny 
you know, all hands on the bad one and one beat. Um, you're so lucky when you get to do records like that because the, honestly, a lot of the time in the studio is spent on projects that, you know, maybe don't have any traction, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes projects don't intend to have any. They're not trying to really make it a big thing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's fine too. I think when you just, just, you'll, you'll just know, or just even start reading, like, what have they done? Like you see that if someone's driven, like the way, the way that summer cannibals are, mm -hmm. you know, that they're not just going to stop or get frustrated and, and, you know, or if someone's got that, you know, it just depends. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you hear something that's brand new and you just go, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. People are going to get it. Mm -hmm. Decemberist. There's a great example. I recorded, uh, their second record. Most mm -hmm. of it. Um, Adam Seltzer did, did the rest good friend of mine and uh so they were in here working on stuff and they had just gotten signed to kill rock stars and slim moon was still running that and he was coming around he's like you guys are one of my favorite bands right now this is just so i'm like okay he's got the muscle to make something happen mm -hmm. you know slim's a real nice really honest straightforward guy and you know and i was listening to this record and i'm like a big like robin hitchcock fan and stuff mm -hmm. like that and i'm like it's all right and I say something to Colin, he goes, oh, me too, you know, and, and I remember talking and, you know, I was like, you know, here's the thing. Like, I also, you know, I'm probably one of the few people that actually does this and is a journalist as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I'm producing records. And then on the other hand, I'm getting hit with people's press releases and promo copies and all that bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it's like 99% of that is miserable trash mm -hmm. it's just so fucking boring mm -hmm. it's being sold to you like imagine if the beatles meet the pet shop boys and you're like no <laughs> nothing sounds like that right. nothing's that good you know right. and you know you're just like it's just it's just garbage you know there's so much garbage music out there and there's a there's a lot of people trying to you know pr people and individuals trying to, to sell it to you you know write about it write about it. and I'm like colin how easy is it going to be to write about the Decemberists? Like these songs are totally like there's a certain thing going on, mm -hmm. you know, with with your lyrics and the stories and the things, and the band's shit hot, you know. Mm -hmm. They place they're all great players, you know. Hmm. I'm like this isn't going to be a problem, and yeah. bam, it hit, you know. Mm -hmm. So you, sometimes you just know because of that because the situations are right, and and the band's got the best some of the best material they've done so far. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's projects I do that are just you know. People are kind of having fun with a band. Like Pie Fight. That's a great example. Last fall or summer, we did a record. And it's all women that met at, like, or met or sort of through Ladies Rock Camp. Where they're, oh, okay. you know, where, where yeah. women, you know, that are, like, 30s or whatever on, you know. So some of the women are, like, my age, like, you know, like 50 or so. Mm -hmm. Or in their 40s, you know. And they came in and we had a blast. It was so fun. And at first I was thinking, God, I don't know. This could be like one of those things where they, they want to be something they're not, you know. They come in the studio and then they're like disappointed. Mm -hmm. But I think we were all happy with how everything, you know. I really guided it and helped produce it. And mm -hmm. and uh, everyone did a great job. But they just had a good attitude, too. They're having fun. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so they're, they're not going to go, you know, on tour for six months. And, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> probably yeah. some of them have kids and things are going on, mm -hmm. you know. But it's like they can have fun locally and, and play shows and, and put out an EP and it's, it's a good time, you know? Yeah. So I, I kind of see the, the beauty of any situation as long as it's, 
no one's frustrated or expecting something that's not going to happen, you know? Right, yeah. Having a, a decent attitude probably helps. A, a good attitude goes yeah. a mile, man. It's yeah. like, you know, there's so many people that if they really, if they come in frustrated already, they feel like, you know, this Portland hipster scene has shut them out or something. It's like, well, they're probably not working that hard. Right. And what is this hipster scene you speak of? I'm <laughs> kind of not quite sure, right. you know? And, uh, you know, I get that sometimes, you know, I've heard that. I'm just like, wow, that's really sad. Yeah. You know, just focus on your art and do a, do a good job. and Then it'll make sense, you know? But people get some weird ideas. Do you sometimes hear, like, you know, as in your function as a journalist or as someone who, who records, do you ever hear, have you heard albums lately where you're just like, it's a good album, but I wish they'd come into Jackpot and let me take a shot at it, you know? Frequently? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of local bands. I mean, I, th but, you know, I've seen, I've grown to the point where I can think that way. Uh -huh. And, you know... Um, if that makes any sense, I, I have to make a record, to be a producer, to be an engineer, even you've got to have some kind of opinions about what you're doing and how it should kind of come together. But to really be a producer where you're in there focusing on tempos and arrangements and vocal pitch and takes and what it could be and adding little parts. I mean, there's stuff on the minders record where it's, I'd be like, Oh, just do a little add in like a four beat section where you go up a, a, a one note, one one note, you know, like take it up a, um, what am I trying to say? Well, just just do a lift mm -hmm. and then drop back down. So it's like you know, and there's and it's like oh, it's fucking amazing. But mm -hmm. it's like that's producing, yeah. To me, that's yeah. like yeah, you know, not just recording. I'm in there going, oh, Martin, I got a great idea. Do this, you know, and um, I think that you know now I can kind of hear when someone might be reminding me of myself, like in my basement or, or mm -hmm. something like, like just simply recording someone. And I'm like, well, that's nice, but it's kind of a demo, mm -hmm. you know, like, like, do you want this to be like really effective? And that's kind of partly, I mean, maybe I'm to blame with tape op, but you know, partly sometimes when people are recording themselves, I'm like the, 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 the goal of recording yourself should be to capture something very unique and special and all these things. It's not just to save money, mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes you hear these records that are so... The drums sound like absolute shit. Mm -hmm. Not in a cool way. Not right. like, not even in like a guided by voices, crazy fun way. Uh -huh. They just sound like shit. They sound like an attempt at recording drums that failed. Uh -huh. And and the vocals are fucking weird frequency spikes. And and you're just like... You know, it's not... And, it, and not for an, in an interesting way. Now, they don't sound like the OCs or something. Yeah. They just sound like shit. Because it's know? not pleasing. Yeah, it's not pleasant. And I hear... I get sent those records by my yeah. readers all the time. Yeah. And it's like... It's a bummer. Because it's like... I could hear what it could be. And that's almost like the producer's curse. This is my mm -hmm. new theory. Like, producer's curse is I hear one pass of a song and you go... Oh, okay. You know? And it's like... You got to go... Well, can it get there to what I could imagine? This is a cool song. Mm -hmm. Can it get there? Or is that is that just impossible yeah you know, that's the best you can do the limitations of the players and, mm -hmm. the, and their preconceptions and mm -hmm. so i mean i hear a lot of records where i'm like wow you know i could have done that a lot better done a lot better job of of that you know mm -hmm. and uh it's kind of hard i mean because i'm not cheap and mm -hmm. i know some people don't have money but mm -hmm. sometimes just getting your idea out there is not enough mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's got to be presented very well Sure. Like if you got a Decemberist record and it sounded all muddy and 
the drums sounded like shit, you wouldn't be very excited about it. You'd be like, well, I mean, the song seems okay, but when yeah. you hear, I mean, like their new record sounds fantastic. Tucker Martin, he's someone I would never say that about. I can't do what Tucker can do. Mm-hmm. Like he's a brilliant producer and an engineer. And we do our own things in our own ways, I mm-hmm. guess. But, you know, I hear that and I go, great job, great job, great ideas, fantastic, you know? And when if I heard something that was like that same music just done, not cooked enough, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's just like, it's a disappointment. It's like, wow, that's too bad. I mean, I did that with Richard Fontaine. I heard the Richard Fontaine's first record sounded like shit. Mm-hmm. And I went to them and I was like, I'll do your next record for like, I worked for less than minimum wage to do their album. Uh-huh. I was like, they said, we got a thousand bucks. I said, sure, sounds good. Let's do it. We worked on it till we were done. And and it was really a nice shift because it actually sounded way more interesting. And, and I wasn't even that good then. That was ages ago. Yeah. But, yeah, I got a do lot you, of opinions. Do you wear a different hat when you're, like, you know, if, if someone comes in, like you, you had mentioned, like, you know, the minders. Yeah. You know, do you wear, like, a different hat as, as producer versus engineer? Do you kind of get in a different mindset? Or can you kind um, of do both at the same I look time? At it, I look at it this way now. I look at it, like, 90% of the time, I'm a producer who can engineer and I don't really ever look to get in a position where I'm not engineering. Like, I'm not interested in padding out the budget and being lazier. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's my forte. I'm a good engineer. You know, I've studied uh-huh. it. I'm good at it. I have had, like, um, my assistant, Adam Lee, I've had him come in and engineer the beginning of a session or just help me put mics up and kind of, you know, maybe even run. I, there was an album I did last summer uh, where I played bass. I brought in Polly Pulverenti to play drums and I played bass so I'm like Adam you know want to work three days with us track the basics uh-huh. and I would come in I'd pick the mics get the sounds but then I don't have to do double duty because uh-huh. that's pretty hard uh-huh. so you know but I, I'm, I'm I was massively producing that record you know I was working on the arrangements out on the floor with the, with as part of the band so uh-huh. that's great um, but I think you know like on the record I just played that snippet of I was hired to be basically just an engineer but the producer coming in was was Oz Fritz, who just did like Tom Waits Mule Variations, and uh, as an engineer, but mm-hmm. he's producing this stuff, and he's someone I've known for years, and really respect. So I'm like, sure, I'll I'll work under him. Mm-hmm. And really, at the end of the day, anyone involved in this project would tell you that the artist was producing it, Oz was co-producing with him, and I was kind of co-producing with Oz or something, because because I would be like, you know, call, making calls on pitch for vocals and stuff, because I was more anal. Mm-hmm. about the, the some of the stuff and, and other things Oz would be like I want to do this and okay yeah sure it's a collaboration of sorts I'm not I wouldn't be someone to just sit here and go oh that's flat but no one's saying anything right I'm never never going to do yeah. that but I'm not an assistant you know uh-huh. I'm not like some junior junior right. employee I'm like you know someone's hiring me and paying me a fair amount of money to to be very professional so do you uh, do you do that a lot? Like have have someone else come in and act as producer, or you know, like is that not as much for me mm-hmm. anymore? I used to work a lot. Uh, JD Foster and I did some Richmond Fontaine records where he was producing, and those were, that was great. Mm-hmm. I, for me, I guess it would have to be if I'm going to say yes to those anymore. It had to be someone I massively respect and know that they have a good attitude and work ethic Mm -hmm. because if i saw someone kind of derailing a band i would be really uninterested in being involved right you know kind of making them pick shittier takes or doing stupid ideas yeah wasting their time i don't want to be around that yeah but you know jd foster is a great musician great great 
great barely knows a little tiny bit of engineering <laughs> and he's a fantastic uh, a fantastic producer it was a real good sounding board for Willie and the band and and I've worked with uh, I worked with him with some Richard Buckner stuff that never got released that was super fun I worked with Luther Russell years ago it was a okay when he was living in town he produced he and I produced a lot of or I was engineer he was producer on a lot of projects that came to him like Fernando and um, uh, AC Cotton and a bunch of random different stuff that we did over the years and that was really good because Luther's really super musical and he knows what he likes so you could just kind of let him guide the I mean he would run out there start playing piano and tell people how to change their vocal harmonies and stuff and I just watched and learned a uh -huh. lot too I, you know from people that are good you learn something uh -huh. like from J.D. Foster I'd learned sometimes you just kind of go it's okay don't worry about it you're doing the right kind of thing and just let the people relax you know John Goodmanson, too, working with Slater Kinney. Mm -hmm. He was producing. I was engineering, but he's a better engineer than me. And so I would learn engineering stuff. Like, I learned Pro Tools making the One Beat album. Mm -hmm. Like, he would do, here's how you make a track. Here's how you arm it. Great. Mm -hmm. You know, so I got paid to learn Pro Tools. And and I would learn, you know, his engineering stuff. But I also learned that kind of dynamic was, like, really good. Like, he was the buffer. He was, like, if the band was uncertain about anything he mostly didn't try to like like the way Luther would guide something he would just kind of be like I think you're on the right track let's let's just keep working on this you know like he just keep a positive attitude and keep them from doubting something and just keep it moving forward and, mm -hmm. and he and it, you know truth be told he did he did the new record too so that they bring him back after this many years you know tells you that they can put their trust in him and he's mm -hmm. you know He's the sounding board, and he's the guy that glues it together, and he makes it sound great. So I think, you know, I learned I learned a lot from people. I just find there's probably less situations where I would be like, you know, oh, sure, I'll work for Joe Blow, producer I've never heard of. You know, like, I'm not probably not going to say yes to that. Right. You know, why don't you just get Adam to engineer it then, you know, and we've done that. We've had Adam engineer with people, and he's having a blast, so mm -hmm. it's good. Um. I noticed that you you have um, a lot of like reel to reel <laughs> tape here, yeah. and and as you mentioned, um, you know, an analog console. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and using you know Pro Tools. Like, how does that sure. all fit together in in your studio for you these days? Any, any way you want it to fit, you know. I mean, my preferred way to work, like with a rock band type situation, mm -hmm. is well, I like sleep like like Summer Cannibals record last summer that we did um i keep forgetting the name of it show show us your mind mm -hmm. uh is um all done on 16 track tape except for a tiny 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 bit of stuff where we added in some extra guitars over the final mixes you know mm -hmm. so and everything got printed back to tape it got mastered off of tape and you know for a quarter inch mm -hmm. and part of that was just like you know, if a young band is just ready to rock, which those guys are absolutely ready to rock, if a, if a band is ready to just lay it down and play live, you know, overdub the vocals, add some guitar solos and call it, the, you know, and then they go to a studio and someone's nick, dicking around in Pro Tools and lining shit up and, mm -hmm. and just not committing to things. And it's, sometimes it's nice to say, okay, 16 tracks, a two-inch tape, that's all you get to fuck with. Mm -hmm. just get the record done mm -hmm. and we got that record done like three days early you know because it was done i was mixing like eight songs a day or something like, okay done you know it was just mm -hmm. so fast hmm. but it felt right and the record feels great to me 
Um, so I, I like working on tape when it, when it's going to go that way. But if someone has a rock band and they're going to try some ambitious stuff and they're maybe they're going to play with, you know, uh, editing things together, all kinds of, I'll just be like, let's, let's track to tape and then dump it into pro tools and then go from there. Uh-huh. And that's a pretty good system because it gives them a little bit of urgency of getting it right on those tape passes. But then we can dump in like four passes of the song and cut pieces together or whatever. Interesting. Then, so it's partly pragmatic and partly creative too. Psychological, even maybe. Oh like yeah, yeah. The tape keeps people. I mean, like the summer cannibals thing. I don't. <laughs> I don't remember if we cut any takes together, but we might have. But but most of the time it was just like let's get a good take, and the and everybody was up for playing really well. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, you know mm-hmm. they kept. I the thing about you know the po- if the possibility of doing something is there like oh, we can do 40 vocal takes and comp them, then, then it, it might happen. And no matter how much you, you'd say early on like that, we're not going to work that way, ha-ha, you know, people end up working that way. Yeah. You know, so if the door could be opened, it, it probably usually gets opened along the way. So, you know, I, I sort of set rules and sort of things. I try to keep things very focused, even in a computer recording scenario. Cause I try to just not have like a lot of un unfinished choices open like which mm-hmm. guitar solo and things i just i build and i comp everything down i get it done and and i don't i don't like sitting there at the mix stage and just going like i don't know you know mm-hmm. i mean i've done records like that and sometimes that's a creative thing and a way of building and working but for my personal choices to really kind of make decisions pretty pretty hard line along the way um and and, and try to stick to them you know just use my gut Mm-hmm. I know most of the time when I'm in here, I'm, I'm probably working with someone who's heard less music than me and, and made less records than me. So sometimes those two factors are really important because I can see a bigger picture outside of what's being created of like, you know, how it fits into the history of rock and roll mm-hmm. and things like that and what kind of records it should sound good against and things like that. Yeah. And sometimes my clients haven't, heard the breadth of stuff that they're even in the genre they might be in so you know that lots of times i feel like you know i'm saving you're trying to save people from themselves and uh, yeah and also yeah, just yeah. try to put them in a place like like summer cannibals you know i didn't it, the funniest thing was happening is I, I played it for a friend after we were done who'd worked with them a little bit uh, and another in pr and stuff and he's like oh huh seems kind of safe i expected it to be wilder and I'm like, this is a great rock and roll record. That's what it is. And it's like, if I'd applied a bunch of like, you know, crazy distortion to everything, and it would sound more modern to me. And I'm not too, you know, there's a, there's a lot of psychedelic and garagey rock lately that's really kind of blown out and distorted and kind of, and that's super fun. That's great. But if that's not the intent from the beginning for the band and me and stuff, I don't see like applying this as like this, you know, patina of, stuff you're smearing all over something that wasn't mm-hmm. played that way yeah you know and i was like well you know we could have done something it might have sounded more current but i think this record's gonna be timeless mm-hmm. there's nothing on it that reeks of anything current recording technology wise mm-hmm. it just sounds like a band rocking out in a room there's plate reavers there's tape delays uh there's spring reverbs there's no you know there, i don't mm-hmm. think there's there may be a tiny bit of digital drum reverb you mm-hmm. know that's like you know I don't know how old that thing is, 15 years old, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, and try to, I always try to shoot for that. Like just something really timeless and, and honest that, that'll hold 
through the years because I've heard I went and lived through the 80s playing in a band and I've heard enough digital reverb on gated snares to last me a lifetime I've heard enough like current tones and sounds that sound dated five years later I don't, yeah. don't want to make those kind of records at yeah. all never is there a um, when you when you hear an album recorded in a particular studio like is there is there a uh, like a studio that you could think of that would be like if you could record in there for a couple weeks or just spend some time in there, that would be your dream. Happy Road, man. Okay. <laughs> I've I've seen all the room. I've been there. Yeah. And I've toured all the rooms and and that one man at Studio Two with the staircase up mm-hmm. where they did a lot of Beatles records. It's like, holy shit! Did you have like an interview with Jeff Emmerich or something in tape op? Yeah, we've interviewed Jeff and we've interviewed uh, a lot of people that worked there over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a good answer. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of an easy... I mean, I'm interviewing people that... uh, Jerry Boys worked there when he was young. Mm. You know, so I've interviewed interviewed a lot of people that have worked out of there over the years. That would be fantastic, just for the legacy and the Mm -hmm. beauty of it. But uh, Blackbird Studios in um, Nashville have also Mm -hmm. also been there a lot. That's probably one of the biggest studios in the world. And it's fantastic. The level of service and quality and uh, just... Good, good vibes, but super professional. That's pretty amazing. But then, you know, on the other hand, it's like sometimes you just like Rancho de la Luna and Joshua Tree, where they do like those desert sessions and stuff is uh-huh. so cool. It's funky. Huh. It's great hanging out there. You know, I've got to visit a lot of places, yeah. obviously. Sonic Ranch in El Paso would be kind of cool. John's, my partner, John Bocciglupi's studio, the Panoramic House in uh, Stinson Beach is where like the new band of horses has been recorded and the um oh what was the other my morning jackets new record was done there okay. and that's a i haven't even been there yet but it's a it's amazing it's like looking out over the pacific ocean and and it's residential and, and there's a great great equipment and rooms and huh. echo chambers and stuff so yeah you know there's a lot of cool places out there yeah. to make records so, um, how did you end up uh, working with uh, Lynda.com for this stuff? Um, it's a little little digression. There. Oh yeah, sure. That was cool. Um, it's really weird. It, they had first kind of done like a profile of you, right? And then then you kind of did more like no, elections? actually backwards. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so, the David Franz, who runs that department, uh, used to work at Ber- went to school at Berkeley College mm-hmm. of Music, and then actually kind of worked there. And he wrote a, a pretty good book early on about uh, like a musician's guide to Pro Tools, I think it was called. And uh, and I'd met him a few times. I really like him. He's just an honest guy. Uh, he's a great musician. You know, he gets it. And so he became the head of Linda's uh, audio department. Okay. And so I went to a meeting, and I, I avoid. So the tape op is 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 a crazy thing to own you know like john and i own it but we have a lot of people that work for us part-time so or we have like two ad reps that work for us part-time we have the web guy and and he works out our subscription stuff our pdfs our databases all that stuff dave dave middleton uh, we have two ad reps uh, laura thurmond and and marcia vadovan and um we have scott mcshane who does pre-press we've got uh, my wife who does uh, proofreading jenna zine uh, we have all sorts of people working, you know, little bits and pieces of it. Uh-huh. And so Marsha was doing a meeting with Linda.com. They had a, a session. They had a 
audio course that Bobby Owensky, Owen Owensky, is that how you say it? But anyway, he'd done this audio course, a very involved one where they went and rented a studio and shot like the basically walk you through a whole session uh-huh. of, of recording a song, uh, bringing in players, all this kind of stuff. Really, really meticulous. And uh, uh, I went to a meeting because she was going to the meeting and she goes, well, David France. I'm like, oh, I want to go. She's like, you never go to these meetings because I, I kind of stay out of the ad business. I don't like mm-hmm. it and try to sell people the magazine. And I don't like it when we go to a review thing where they're trying to sell us their products to review. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was like, well, this could be kind of cool. And during lunch, we had lunch or breakfast or something. And I was like, David, you know, I'd, I'd love to do a course because I had this in my head. I was almost going to just hire someone to shoot a bunch of little videos just to promote the studio mm-hmm. and just show some things and give them away for free. And um, he's like, let's talk. And so, you know, a year later or whatever it was, nine months, we were setting up and shooting. I had to write all these scripts and, and it was a lot of work. Uh I'm doing, I'm doing, I got more coming up. I'm going to be in, in the Southern California, like in August shooting more of these, more like a screen capture type type ones. Oh, okay. But, um, man, uh, it was like, you know, almost two weeks of shooting or something, nine, nine or 10 days actually total. Um, and we shot the mixing and recording courses and I had to get all sorts of songs prepared and written and musicians hired to come mm-hmm. in and it was a lot of work and there was like a four person crew doing it. Wow. Um, it was wild. Yeah, I mean they're really well done. You don't realize how many people are involved in that or how many hours but yeah. Um, it's pretty extensive, you know. That's what I was thinking of earlier when you were talking about like, you know, some bands that make, you know, kind of say, well I'll just record this myself and, you know, <clears throat> make probably pretty amateurish mistakes in terms of not knowing how yeah. to fit the sound together, how to, like, capture the sound. Recording and mixing an album is not easy. If sure. It, if it was really that easy to make a great album on your own, <laughs> there would be a lot more great albums that were made, like, single-handedly. Yeah. I, you know, like, even, like, Elliot's best work was not done alone, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, I just, I think people don't get it. There's a few people, like Jason Lytle and Granddaddy and stuff, who can basically pretty much pull it all off, but even he needs help at the mixing stages, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think there's some very few people that, that, you know, like if you think how many, how many, if, a, if an artist tries to even mix their own records, right? Like how many records are they going to mix in their lifetime? Right. You know, not very many. Yeah. And it's like, well, how do you get good at something? Right. <laughs> you know, you get good by doing it over and over and over and over. Uh-huh. And so I, do, I get really discouraged or frustrated with that, where I'm just like, God, just at least hire a mix engineer. Like, I can take things that sound pretty bizarre or, or screwy and, and rebuild them and make uh-huh. them sound a hell of a lot better because I know how to put it together. And uh-huh. So I'm always kind of frustrated by that. But I do, I do a lot of that kind of work. You know, I do a lot of mixing for people internationally, nationally are in town, you know, of all kinds of music stuff. So that, yeah. that's kind of fun. Yeah. But yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like more than more than probably most, like you've put time into doing, you know, tape op and that Linda stuff. I mean, actually, you actually make an effort to show people how to do this stuff, you know. But yeah. at the same time. There aren't, well, that's why I call that like mixing secrets and, or yeah. something. And it's like, there's no secrets. It's yeah, so yeah, funny. Yeah. It's like. Right. You know, it's I gotta have a catchy title. You know, they were they thought it, I thought it was kind of hilarious <laughs> yeah. at first. I was like, "Come on, guys!" And then I was like, "Why not?" It's a good tag, you know. Grab someone. Yeah. But you know, I mean, it's there's no secrets. 
and, yeah. and it, it's like you can read how to do someone's technique, like the Glenn Johns drum miking technique. You know, yeah. you can read how to do that, but the reality is when you sit down and try to do that, it's really easy to fail. Like mm-hmm. he knows exactly where he wants to put it and mm-hmm. how to set things, and it works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can show someone how to mic a guitar cabinet. If they do it just visually and they don't listen, then they're not going to succeed. So, you know, I, I, you know, it's just you're trying to get them partway there. You know, mm-hmm. like I remember when I first started, I'm like, where do I put the mic on the guitar? And I don't know, mm-hmm. but I figured, well, I'd seen it on stage and I'd seen it mic'd in the studio, kind of by the cone. You know, mm-hmm. but you'll find people like they read something like. Oh man, you know we were able to mic the amps from twenty feet away, and it was such a cool sound. And you're like, yeah, that usually doesn't work at all except for like feedback or like solos. But they'll mic all their stuff in some weird way because they read it in a magazine. Yeah, and then everything sounds really weird. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I said weird, weird in a way like it doesn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like weird for me, there's always great. <laughs> you hear about like you'll as a as a fan of music, you'll read about like. Oh, and when so and so was in the studio, they and you know, had the singer go in the bathroom with a mic, or they, yeah. you know, recorded in a castle with the, oh, yeah. you know, and it's like, yeah, you know, but part of it's just like you're trying to think of something to say because most of the days are just slogging it out, yeah, you know, doing you know 14 days of vocal comping or something, yeah, you know, it's just it's like those there's I think someone someone once I read something someone was like you know if I went and sat on the making of Dark Side of the Moon I would have fallen asleep you know because it was just slow going yeah you know it's it's never really there's sometimes you're laying down a basic take or or you're laying down like this this record I played a bit of we were laying it down with a live vocal and some of those vocals we kept or kept parts of you know and so when you heard it it was kind of close to what it's going to be like all the players were playing live you know it was really cool and so Sometimes you get that, like a live thing is happening in front of you. But other times it's like, okay, we're going to have to do you have a checklist, you know. <laughs> we're going to do all these things, and we're going to edit things and do all this stuff. So where can people learn more about you and what you do? Are there some well, good websites that you might point well, people to? I do have some websites, <laughs> lots of them. Yes. Um, my main personal website is just Larry-Crane, C-R-A-N-E.com. And, and that's got just information about all the things I've done, like, mm. you know, producing and editing and writing and music that I've done. There's actually free music on there, all kinds of shit. And then um, the magazine is tapeop.com, T-A-P-E-O-P.com. And that's got subscriptions, free subscriptions anywhere in the world via PDF and print versions in the States. Um, you know, and lots of back issues you can read and articles, all the reviews of gear you can read for free. And then um, uh, jackpotrecording.com is the studio website. So that's there's also that. And uh, yeah, that's that's some of the things I do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Top five list. Cool. Well, yeah. thanks so much, Larry. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm.